Good morning. Good to see you guys. You know, when people find out that I'm a pastor, and I don't tell them, I purposely don't try to tell people that I'm a pastor because it always changes the tone of the conversation that I'm in the middle of. I don't mean it to, but somehow it does. I was at a, uh, at a celebration of life a couple, a while back, and I had done the, the funeral early in the morning, and it was in the later afternoon time, and I got there a little bit early, and I'm talking with somebody, and he's holding a Coors Light, an unopened can of Coors Light, and we're just talking. We're having a great conversation. We're looking at pictures. We're talking. A lady walks by and says, Pastor, I really appreciated what you said this morning. I saw the dude with his Coors Light go behind his back with it. <laughs> and so she passes by, and he's still kind of awkwardly standing there, like, like, I don't know what's going on. And so I said, hey, do you need, you need some help? You need me to open this for you? What's, what's the deal? Uh, it's okay, my man. But it changes. It always changes the tenor of the conversation. It always changes the tone of the conversation. So I hardly ever tell people what I do. I try not to let them know. But when they do, um, sometimes they will ask, well, what's the hardest part of your job? Have you ever thought about that? Well, what is the pastor's hardest part of the pastor's job? Because usually, most people assume it's this part right here. And um, they think this has to be the hardest part of the job. And, and it, it's actually, it is hard, it is challenging to take an ancient text, an ancient, an ancient author's uh, text, and to filter through all of the cultural understanding at that time, all of the history, all the background, and to craft a sermon that connects, hopefully is clear, not always, I understand that. Sometimes I leave a message and I'm like, I don't know what I just said. Um, but hopefully it's clear enough and it connects people well enough to the gospel of Christ. That is hard work. It is challenging work. It's not like physical work, but it's, it's mentally exhausting. But that's actually not the hardest part of the job. The hardest part of the job is holding people to their marriage vows. That is actually a much harder part of the job that happens all the time. It's always an underlying reality of the job that nobody ever thinks about. Um, but it's always there. It's holding people to their marriage vows. Um, because normally by the time they reach out to me about their marriage, um, they've already asked a thousand other people what they ought to do, including Google. I, I, I find out that I come after Google. They ask all of their boyfriends, all of their girlfriends, everybody they know, they ask Facebook, and then they ask Google, and then they come and they ask me, which, you know, I'm not going to take too much offense to that, but that's, that's the case. Um, they, they will come to me after everybody else. Um, and so the hardest part of a pastor's job is holding people to, to their uh, marriage vows. Wow, I completely skipped a section in my notes already. That's not good for you guys. Um, and so it's, it's incredibly hard. And have you noticed that marriage is both wonderful and painful? Have you noticed that? 
it's really at times incredibly wonderful. And then at other times, it is darn, darn right painful. There are incredible joys and incredible pain at certain times. And so oftentimes, again, my, the hardest part of my job is holding people to their wedding vows because, again, they've reached out to everybody else by the time they come to me. And everything in the culture is telling them to take the easy route, and the easy route is the path of divorce. And they say, this, the path of divorce will bring you freedom. It will bring you happiness. It will bring you joy. But the ancient wisdom of the scripture says, more often than not, now catch that phrase, the ancient wisdom of the scripture says, more often than not, that's not the case. And today in our text, the Apostle Paul will answer some questions regarding marriage and divorce that the Corinthian Christians have. So here's the reality of today. I'm going to have to say some hard things. But I'm going, to have, I'm going to try my best to say them with a soft touch, okay? And this is, it's an incredibly personal matter for a great many of you. It's an incredibly personal matter for me. I don't think I've ever told you this before, but my very first memory as a child, I can't go further back in my mind than this. I've tried hundreds of times. But my very first memory as a child is my mom pulling out of our driveway for the last time before my parents ended up in a divorce, me sitting in my parents' bedroom and watching my mom leave and me turning to my dad and saying, what's going on here? And he, he told me what was taking place. So it's a personal issue. When we talk about marriage and divorce, it's a very personal issue. And I'll have to say some hard things today, but know that I'm going to do it to the best of my ability with a soft touch, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And as, I, as you're turning, let me remind you that Paul has been dealing with the topic of sex within marriage. And I got, as you might have expected, quite a bit of emails and comments last week regarding it. And, in, and mostly positive, mostly from men. Um, and in the first seven verses of chapter seven, Paul says sick, sex isn't simply about a physical appetite. And it's not simply about procreation. Paul says sex within marriage is a, is a purposeful and pleasurable gift from the Lord. And he tells them two things that we talked about last week. First of all, it's to be regularly enjoyed. It's to be regularly enjoyed. He says to husbands and wives, you need to be on a regular diet of sex. It should not be a sometimes food, which is something you have every six weeks. He says it should be, you should be on a regular, uh, a regular diet of sex. Now, he doesn't say how often it should be. He gives no parameters for that, meaning that's open for dialogue and discussion within each married couple. But it should be frequent enough within a marriage that neither partner is sexually frustrated. So sex within marriage is to be regularly enjoyed. But then secondly, what he says is it's to be reciprocal in nature. So husbands and wives are to, they're to seek to outdo the other within marriage, within the sexual relationship of a marriage. It's sex within marriage is to be this total self-giving love. Sex is not about taking it's about giving. It's not about demanding. It's about serving. So sex, again, sex within marriage is to be this total self-giving love. It's about, it's about mutual joy and satisfaction. And after last Sunday, coupled with the valley-wide internet outage, we are expecting quite a bit of babies to be born 
next October, um, we have a bet going in the office. There should be lots of baby dedications next October. That's a good thing. Now, so Paul's just outlined what sex about uh, sex within marriage, and he knows that this is what he's just said is going to cause a stir. It's going to cause some questions within the uh, Christian community at Corinth. And so in verses 8 through 16 of 1 Corinthians 7, he's going to offer uh, his pastoral perspective on specific situations within the church at Corinth. And that's in the area of singleness. That's in the area of ma- the marriage of two believers. And then, in the mar- and then he'll offer advice uh, in the area of a marriage where one person's a Christian and the other one isn't. He will get very uh, practical and very personal with each group. And so let me tell you what he's going to say. I'll give you the outline, and then we'll go and see it, and then we'll come back and I'll tell you what he said. So here's what Paul's going to say. In verses 8 through 9, he's going to affirm the goodness of singleness. He's going to affirm the goodness of of singleness, and then in verses 10 through 16, Paul affirms the goodness of marriage. Verses 10 through 16. And this is really interesting that he does it this way. Because in our culture, Christians will come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 looking for an out within their marriage. If you've ever done pastoral work for any length of time, you know that when Christians come to you and they bring up 1 Corinthians 7, more often than not, they're looking for a way to get out of their marriage. And that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. Um, He does deal with the hardship of life and the realities of marriage, and he will deal with the realities of divorce. But his primary aim, Paul's primary aim, as a church, our primary aim is to help people who are married stay married. Yeah? But before he affirms that, he, uh, before he affirms the goodness of marriage, he affirms the goodness of singleness. So let's get into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Look at what Paul says here. Or verse, verse, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry. No, verse 8, I was right. Look at what he says, verse, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul says to those who are presently not married or those who have um, been married but they're now widowed, what he says is it's perfectly good and holy to remain single. Just as Paul is. And the word good there, uh, that's translated good, it, it, in the Greek, it's, um, it means good, holy, or bright. And that's what he's saying. He says it's a perfectly justifiable position. If you want to remain single, remain single. And I mentioned this last week. Paul will talk a lot more. He'll mention singleness again. He'll ad- address this topic uh, much more in verses 25 through 35 of 1 Corinthians 7. So, I'm going to wait to address it more in depth when we get to that, to that section. But notice, Paul says that choosing a life of singleness can be as rewarding and as fulfilling as marriage. And you know who needs to hear that? The church needs to hear that. Because in the church, married life is idolized. The nuclear family is normalized 
And single people tend to feel marginalized. And that's a bad look for the Christian church. Uh, It ought not to be that way. And in the family of God, the body of Christ, we want to insist on the goodness of single life. And the crucial reality that, that humanity is not made complete in marriage. They're not made complete in marriage. They're not made complete by sexual fulfillment. We're made complete in Christ and our identity in him. And a lot of Christians, they somehow think that they're incomplete as a person if they're not married. Or they're not fully living life if they're living life without sex. Not actually realizing that the Lord himself, Christ Jesus, was fully human and fully alive without marriage and without sex. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, the person responsible for writing the vast majority of the New Test- what the New Testament teaches about sex and marriage, he himself was single. So his teaching, therefore, it can't be dismissed as self-centered. <laughs> it, can't be, it, it can't be dismissed as, as self-centered because he wasn't married. It can't be dis- dismissed as unrealistic. Singleness is a perfectly good and valuable option. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Look at the pastoral wisdom of Paul. He says, if they don't have the gift of singleness, the gift of singleness and celibacy, and it is a gift, by the way, then it's better to marry than to be consumed with sexual passion. Right? It's better to pursue marriage in that case than burn with sexual passage and passion. And if you mix sexual passion with a lack of self-control, well, that leads straight into sexual immorality. So Paul says, it's, if, you, if, you can't, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, then you should pursue marriage. Now again, notice, though, that Paul doesn't look down upon this scenario. He doesn't see it as a lesser state of life. He just says, if you don't have the gift of celibacy then marriage is a better option for you. He doesn't pass judgment on him, though. He doesn't look down upon his nose. He handles it with pastoral wisdom and nuance. Um, Good pastoral wisdom and nuance. So he affirms the goodness of singleness. Now, in verses 10 through 16, now through 10, 10 and 16, he's going to affirm the goodness of marriage. And again, uh, he'll address two types of marriages. The first, in verses 10 and 11, is the marriage of believers, two people who are believers. And then in verses 12, so put yourself, you've got to figure out which scenario you're in. In verses 10 and 11, the marriage of two believers. And then in verses 12 through 16, it's a marriage where only one person in the marriage is a Christian. And he'll give some uh, wisdom and pastoral advice there. So first, to the marriage where both partners are Christian, Paul says, if you're married to a Christian, seek to stay married. Look at verse 10. Look at what he says. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And that phrase, not I, but but the Lord, what he's saying is, we have direct teaching from Jesus on this topic, and I'm going to tell you exactly what Jesus would say. And he's referencing Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus gives specific teaching on the topic of marriage and divorce, and Jesus says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So Paul says, based upon Jesus' teaching, second part of verse 10, 
He says, I, I give this charge. The wife, now notice he starts with the wife. Maybe he has in mind a specific situation. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul says, what he says in verses 10 through 11, if you're, he says, if you're married to a Christian, seek to stay married. That should be the regular practice of Christians. And I got to tell you, there's this notion um, that Christians divorce at the same rate as the world around them. Have you heard that before? That is simply not true. Uh, Shanti Feldman, who is a social researcher, in her book, The Good News About Marriage, she notes that if both partners are Christians and they regularly attend church and they practice their faith, the divorce rate amongst that group of people is 9%. It's 9%. And then she says in the book, the popular belief that the rate of divorce is the same inside and outside the church is based on a deeply entrenched misunderstanding about the results of several George Barna surveys over the last few decades. 9%. And I got to tell you, um, when I was in seminary, one of our professors, Gary Brashears, Gary is like the yoga, uh, Yoda, the Yoda of pastoral um, scholars. He did a longitudinal study, and his results came about the same, same percentage. He said 9 to 10%. And now you may hear that, and you may think to yourself, yeah, well, that's just a Christian spin on it. Okay, fine. Listen to this. 2009, the University of Virginia. Now let's ask, University of Virginia, is that a Christian university or is that a public university? That's a public university, good. They ran this massive study, which they published under the title of The State of Our Unions, Marriage in America. And the author of a guy by the name of Bradley Wright, Dr. Bradley Wright, he states this. He says, if you are reasonably well-educated, if you're a reasonably, reasonably well-educated person with a decent income, come from an intact family, are religious, and marry after 25 without having a baby first. It's kind of a key. Which, by the way, is how the Bible recommends that order goes. Marriage and then the baby. So he says, if, if you're a reasonably well-educated person with a decent income, come from an intact family, are religious, and marry after 25 without having a baby first, your chances of divorce are very low. That's great news. That is great news. See, we tell kids, I mean, so many kids, they grow up thinking, well, 50% of divorces or 50% of marriages are going to end up in divorce, so why do I want to get married? And they're pessimistic about marriage. But now listen to what the gospel, what, what Christianity actually, what the facts are about Christianity. It says if you, it's 9% if you married somebody of the same faith, you do it in the right order, <laughs> you regularly attend church and you practice your faith. You take your faith seriously, it's 9%. That's wonderful. Well, what do you do if you're in a marriage with another Christian and you're in an incredibly hard season, what do you do then? Well, you keep investing in your marriage. That's what you do. You keep investing in your marriage. You find a biblical counselor. You start praying for your spouse rather than telling all of your friends 
the terrible things your spouse does. And then you return to your marriage vows again and again and again. I can tell you this today because Tree is not in the room. When Tree and I first got married, we lived in this tiny little apartment with mold everywhere. And the first year of marriage, I don't know if it was like this for you, but it's incredibly hard. Like you find out that you're not always right about things. And even if you are right about it, you're wrong in a lot of the times. So our first year of marriage, I, I taped our wedding vows to the refrigerator. Because every time I lost an argument, which was every day, I, I would get upset and I would walk to the refrigerator to grab a Coke out of the refrigerator. And I remember every time I would open the refrigerator, I would look at my marriage vows and I would say, this is what I promised? This, this is, but I took it seriously. I said, no, you promised this. You made this vow to the Lord and to your spouse. And though you're ticked off right now, and though you lost another argument, even though you think you're right, um, this is the covenant that you made. Because your vows, by returning to your vows, and by the way, I do this for couples that I marry, when they email me, I keep all their vows. So when they call me in a hard time, I say, well, let me email you your vows. Because in your vows, you're promising future love. Future love. Because you already love them in the moment. But you're promising them future love so that when you don't love them, and every marriage goes through a period where you don't love your spouse, where you're going to say, no, I'm going to love them regardless. Even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to love you. So what do you do? You keep investing in your marriage. You keep investing in your marriage. And by the way, um, starting in March, on Wednesday nights, I'm going to teach an eight-week series on marriage. I taught it about five or six years ago, and I figured it was time to do it again. So starting in March, if, if you're in a hard season of your marriage right now, or you're engaged, and you think marriage is going to be a breeze, <laughs> I love it, uh, come Wednesday nights. Uh, starting in March, there'll be an eight-week ser- series we'll do on marriage. So let me encourage you to be a part of that. Keep investing in your marriage. Here's the other thing to do. Keep telling yourself that marriage is lifelong and what you're in is simply a season. Right? Tell yourself that marriage is lifelong and what you're in is simply a season. 2002, the University of Chicago, so again, not a Christian university, not a Christian study, it's a secular study. Listen to what they did. 2002, University of Chicago. Uh, They did this long study on marriage, and their results were surprising to them. Listen to what their study revealed. It said two out of three unhappy, two out of three unhappily married adults who avoided divorce or separation ended up happily married five years later. Now think about that. Look at that. Let me read it again. Some of you are thinking about it. Could that possibly be true? Listen to what he says. Two out of three unhappily married adults who avoided divorce or separation ended up happily married five years later. And then it poses this question. Why did these marriages survive where other marriages did not? Here's what they found out. Many spouses said that their marriages got happier Not because they and their partner resolved any problems, but because they stubbornly outlasted them. Is that not true? 
seriously, because a lot of times the things that come up in our life that cause us great pain and, and heartache and struggle, those things come and they go. And you don't do anything about them. You didn't solve the problem. You didn't solve the problem at all. Those things just came into your life and they came out of your life. And so everything in the culture tells you just go and get a divorce and you'll be happy and everything will be fine. You'll be happy. But again, from that same study, University of Chicago study, listen to this. Divorce did not reduce symptoms of depression for unhappily married adults or raise their self-esteem or increase their sense of mastery on average compared to unhappy spouses who stayed married. And their overall health, those who got divorced, it actually declined. You know what all that means? You know what all, now I just gave you a lot of stats, but you know what all that means? Here's what it means. It means social science is finally catching up to the Bible. That's what it actually means. Social science is finally catching up to the Bible. It's finally coming to see that the ancient wisdom of the scriptures, it offers a far better, far deeper understanding on marriage and happiness than anything our culture offers. So what does Paul do? He affirms the goodness of marriage and he instructs those who are married, where both, where both partners are, are believers, to seek to stay married. Knowing, and you gotta know this, through the trials and stressors of marriage, and there's a thousand of them, through the trials and stressors of marriage, the Lord is at work forming you into the person he wants you to be and forming your spouse into the person that he created them to be. And when you look back on it all, you'll see how all the trials and all the stresses the Lord used to form you into the person you were created to be. And that's the greatest reward and fulfillment this side of heaven. And so he says, if you're with a Christian partner, seek to stay married to the very best of your ability. Don't take the easy way out. Don't listen to what the culture tells you. Real life and real happiness is actually found within married marriage, if you're married. Now, in verses 12 through, four, uh, 12 through 16, how much time do I got? Oh, gosh. Now, 12 through 16, Paul will turn his attention to those marriages where one person is a Christian and the other one isn't. And maybe one person converted to Christianity and the other one didn't. And Paul knows that there's going to be confusion within the Corinthian church about this because he has said in chapter 5, he's told them not to associate with the immoral. Well, does that mean for a Christian then, it's their Christian duty to dissolve a marriage and seek remarriage? Seek, seek remarriage with a believing spouse? And Paul will say, no, 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 no. If you're married, he says, if you're married to a non-Christian, seek to stay married. Look at what he says, verse 12. To the rest... I say, I, not the Lord. Now, what he's saying is, with that, because a lot of people get confused about that, what he's saying is, Jesus didn't speak to this issue directly because um, Jesus was speaking within the Jewish framework. Paul's the, the um, apostle to the Gentiles. The Jews were married to Jews. And he's saying, Jesus didn't speak to this issue specifically, but I am. As an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I am. So this is not just Paul. A lot of people take this as just Paul's human opinion. No, 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 no. This is Paul setting forth revelation of God on this particular matter. And look at what he says, verse 12. He says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman, uh, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, 
and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, um, deserts them, is the idea. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now look at what Paul says here. There's three reasons why he lists that a Christian should seek to stay in the marriage, even if they're married to an unbeliever. Well, what's the first one? The first one is the principle of consecration. Um, consecration, that's an old, kind of older English word. But the, the Corinthians, they were concerned that a marriage to an unbeliever probably defiles them in some way. And Paul is saying, rather than defiling the Christian spouse, the Christian spouse is having a sanctifying effect on the marriage and their home. You see where it says, um, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. That's not saying he's saved. What it's saying is, because of the Christian spouse's presence within the home, he's, there, there's a uh, holification process going on. He's becoming, he's in the process of sanctification. He's in the process of becoming sanctified. One commentator put it like this. He says, the lifestyle of the Christian partner cannot but affect the ethos and to some extent the values and the lifestyle of the home, whether this be in the, it, with the husband or the wife. Which means if you're in a marriage and your spouse isn't a Christian, first of all, let's all freely admit that that's a hard place to be. That's a really hard place to be. If, especially if they don't like the Christian faith. If they ridicule it. That's a really hard place to be because you have to hide away the part of yourself that gives you the most life. You have to hide away the main identity, the main uh, source of your joy. That's a hard place to be. But if you're, at marriage, if you're in a marriage where the spouse isn't a Christian, oftentimes you feel outnumbered. But what Paul is saying is you're not. You're not outnumbered in the marriage because the, Lord's, the Lord is in the marriage. And you and the Lord outnumber your spouse. And your presence alone can have a great sanctifying effect upon your home, your spouse, and your children. So first, he says, don't do it because of the principle of consecration. Second, second reason you should seek to stay in the marriage is because of the potential of conversion. Look at verse 16. He says, For you do not know, wife, whether you will save your husband. Or you do not know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Paul says, because of the believing person's influence within their marriage... There's always, there's always the potential that their spouse and their children may become converted. And Peter says the same thing. Uh, jot down 1 Peter, 3, verses, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Because Peter says essentially the same thing to women who are in a marriage relationship with an unbelieving husband. That their conduct within the marriage can be used by the Lord to bring forth the conversion of their spouse. 
So there's always the potential of conversion. Now, with that said, let me also say that marriage is not to be entered into as an evangelistic enterprise, right? Can we just freely acknowledge that? Some people, some, it's, it, more often than not, it's women who tend to think, well, he's not a Christian, but I can change him. <laughs> no, you can't. That's the Spirit's job. And while it may happen, and if it does happen, praise the Lord, there will be a lot of heartache before that happens. So marriage is not to be entered into as an evangelistic enterprise. But if you find yourself within a marriage where, where you're the believer and your spouse isn't, then there is every reason to suppose that the sovereign Lord is at work within your marriage and within your family. And as you pray and as you try to consistently live out gospel realities, you can trust that that partner, even though he may not be, he or she may not be won by your word, he or she may be won without a word, simply by the godliness of your life. And that potential, that potential is always there. And keep praying for it. Keep praying for it. And we as a church, we pray for it all the time. Now the third reason, Paul says, um, that Paul says people should seek to stay in the marriage where one's a believer and the other isn't, is because of the permanence of the covenant marriage. It's the permanence of the covenant marriage. And that's implied. That's an implied presupposition within the text because of everything that we, everything that we talked about last week. And therefore, the Christian partner should do everything within their power to live at peace with their partner and to uphold the covenant of marriage. Now, with that said, however... The Bible and Paul, the Bible and Paul, um, they're very realistic. And they deal with the difficulties of marriage. And they deal with the destruction of the, the marriage covenant, which leads to divorce. And the Bible says there are legitimate reasons for divorce. Divorce is never the goal. Make sure you hear that clearly. It's never the goal. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always restoration. But when a marriage has been so damaged by entrenched sin and so devalued that the Bible and the Lord allows for divorce because the Lord's more concerned with the discipleship of the individuals within the marriage than the marriage itself. And so he allows for divorce for several specific situations, several legitimate reasons. Well, what are they? Well, the first one, of course, is adultery. And, and most Christians know this. The Bible allows for divorce for adultery. This comes out clearly in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, I won't make you turn there, I'll read it to you. Jesus says that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So Jesus is saying, what he's saying is, despite what the culture around you says, because I don't know if you know this, but during Jesus' lifetime, the culture around him was very loose regarding marriage and divorce. Several rabbis taught that if your wife is not good looking enough, you can divorce her. If she doesn't cook good enough, you can divorce her. And now look at what Jesus says. He says, oh no. No, 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 no. He says, what's the reason for divorce? There's, he says there's a ground here for divorce, but it's sexual infidelity. That's the grounds for divorce. Now, again, that's the grounds for divorce. It's not required. It's a legitimate reason, but it's not required. You can pursue 
reconciliation. And I'll tell you this. Um, one of the men I look up to the most is a guy my age, actually a little bit younger. He found out um, six months after his wedding, he found out that his bride had been cheating on him the entire relationship, even on their wedding day. And he pursued reconciliation with them. 20 years later, they're still happily married, beautiful, amazing family. And I look at that and I think, God bless that man. He did. He took the gospel to the ultimate point and said, I can forgive the inexcusable in her because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in me. So while adultery is a ground for divorce, uh, reconciliation, restoration is always the hope. Now the second is what is abandonment. So adultery is one, abandonment is the other one. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Let it be so. Uh, so when an unbelieving spouse has deserted the marriage, abandons the marriage, God releases the believing spouse, and they're free to marry. And by the way, so I know it will come into some of your minds. Well, what do you do if they profess to be a Christian, and they up and they abandon their marriage? They desert their marriage. Here's what we do. After much counseling, if they're not willing to return to the family, we take it to mean that they made a false profession of faith, and they were never really a believer. And then the spouse who was abandoned is free to remarry sometime later. Does that make sense? So clearly, uh, adultery and abandonment so devalue the marriage relationship and bring such destruction to the covenant that those are grounds for divorce. And those are the ones that the majority of Christians readily agree with. Well, are those the only grounds? Here's, let me tell you this. In, in 2019, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, who is the professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona, he's the past president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's the author of over 20 books. Uh, in 2019, Grudem and his research team started researching the phrase in verse 15. Go ahead and look at it. The phrase that reads, in such cases... Now, notice that's in the plural. He doesn't say, in this case. The phrase, in such cases, the brother or sister is not, in, is not enslaved. That phrase, in such cases, it doesn't appear anybody, anywhere else in the New Testament. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't appear in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But it does occur in Greek literature outside of the Bible. And to Grudem's surprise, this phrase had never been studied by biblical scholars. And what Grudem discovered after he and his team searched hundreds of years, hundreds of years of Greek literature, is that what it refers to is similar situations in nature, but not identical to the one that's actually being addressed. And so Grudem, what he says in his book, a recent book, that our name of the book is Divorce and Remarriage by Wayne Grudem. If you want to look it up, it's a short little 80-page book. It's great. What, Paul, what uh, Grudem says, he says, when Paul uses in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, he implies that divorce is a legitimate possibility, not only in cases of desertion by an unbeliever, but also in other circumstances that are similar to, 
but not necessarily desertion. So what he's saying is there's other situations that so devalue the covenant and so destroy a marriage that there are legitimate grounds for divorce. And I got to tell you, um, Pastor Rick and I, we were in the room at the Evangelical Theological Society when Grudem presented this paper. And my appreciation, I think in the room, my appreciation for biblical scholarship for the life of the church, it just increased immensely. And so he says there's other legitimate grounds. So, what are, so you got to ask yourself, what are other situations that are similar to the destructive nature of marriage? like adultery and abandonment. Well, I'll tell you what it is. One of them, it's abuse. Abuse. And for years, women have been caught in a marital situation where their husband would either physically or mentally abuse them and they didn't have the biblical ground to divorce their husband. And for women who take the scripture seriously, they were enslaved. They felt trapped. And you can question me on that, but I promise you that's the case. I had a woman come to me after 47 years of marriage, week after her husband died, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm finally free. He mentally abused this woman for 47 years. So according to Grudem, based on the biblical research in such cases, we would say both physical and mental abuse are grounds for divorce. And this actually accords with what Thomas Cramner wrote in the 1500s. Now don't go to sleep when I start talking about church history here, okay? Church history, some of you guys don't think it's fascinating. I'm telling you, I promise you, it's totally fascinating. Uh, Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and if you were married in a Protestant church, you probably uh, recited his marriage vows, the, the vows that uh, Cramner wrote, to love and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, uh, until death do us part. That's, that's all Cramner. That's out, out of the Book of Common Prayer, which was an Anglican um, document that he published. So in 1553, during the English Reformation, listen to what Cram Cramner writes. He says, now we're talking about abuse, both physical and mental. Listen to what he says. He says, if deadly hostility should arise between husband and wife and become so inflamed that one attacks the other, either by treacherous means or by poison, which was common in the 1500s. No joke, that was straight up common in the 1500s. Either by treacherous means or by poison, and wants to take the other, other's life in some way, either by open violence or hidden malice. It is our will that as soon as the horrible crime is proved in court, and he's not talking about civil court, he's talking about the church, for such, such persons shall be separated by divorce. For a person who attacks health and life does greater injury to his marriage partner than one who separates himself from the other's company or commits adultery with someone else. For there cannot be any sort of fellowship between those who have begun to plot or to fear mortal harm. Therefore, since they cannot live together, it is right for the marriage to be dissolved according to the teaching of Paul. So, so what Grudem is saying is what Kramner is saying is physical abuse would certainly be one of the grounds for divorce. But more than that, it's also mental abuse. Because then he talks about ill treatment. And he says this, if a man is cruel to his wife. Now, you also have to uh, preface this with 
Severe cruelty, right? We're not talking, hey, my spouse and I got in an argument. Or she asked, or I asked him, how do I look in this dress? And he said, oh, not that good. Um, it's, it's more than that. This is severe cruelty, long-term severe cruelty. So he says, if a man is cruel to his wife and displays excessive harshness of word and deed towards her, and if he refuses to abandon his cruelty by this means, then he must be considered his wife's mortal enemy and a threat to her life. Therefore, in her recourse, must be had the remedy of divorce, no less than if her life had been openly attacked. So there are other grounds. What, what, what Grudem's research did, and what I'm um, putting forth before you, is there are other grounds. Now, they all have to be taken really, really seriously. You can't, this does not open up the, 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 the possibility of divorce for all sorts of things. But the church would say, we would say as a church, and I'm writing a position paper towards this end, and it'll be on our website as soon as I find time to write it. <sighs> what, what we would say is adultery, abandonment, and abuse would be the grounds for divorce. And in those cases, and only in those cases, the non-offending spouse would be open to remarriage. But again... The goal is reconciliation and restoration. The goal is always restoration and reconciliation. But in the realities of life, we know that's not always feasible, nor is it always, nor is it always wise. And if you have questions about that, what, everything I just said, remember, my email address is kelly at trail.org. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. If you've got questions about it, come up afterwards to talk. I'd be happy to talk about this. I've been wrestling with this topic for, what year are we in, 2024? So, Four years now, I've been, reading, I've been reading pretty extensively on this. So you can come up, come up and talk with me afterwards if you want. Um, I have so much more to say, guys, but my time is up. So let me wrap it up like this. Are you divorced? Are you divorced? Here's what I would say if you are or if you've gone through a divorce. Your divorce is not the final thing, but it may feel like it. Your divorce is not the final thing, but it may feel like it. What I mean by that is it's not the defining reality of your life. Well, then what is? The Lord's love and his grace and your discipleship to him. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I know I told you I was done, but I was lying. Romans chapter 8. Just one book forward in your Bible. Look at verse 31, Romans chapter 8. Hmm. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Hmm. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword Skip down to verse 37. No, in all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor, uh, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, if you're divorced, it may feel like a final thing. But it's not. It's really not. Because the Lord's love and his grace meets you. And his discipleship, your discipleship to him, is the defining reality of your life, not divorce. And if you want to talk about that afterwards, come on up afterwards. Again, I'd be happy to talk with you. Now, if you're married, let me say this. Your marriage isn't the ultimate thing. Divorce isn't the final thing, but it feels like it. Your marriage isn't the ultimate thing, but it points to it. It points to it. Well, how does it do that? Well, there's no relationship between human beings that's greater or more important than marriage. Marriage is, next to our relationship with God, the most profound relationship there is. And marriage is both painful and wonderful at the same time. We opened with this. And the text implies this. Why is it both painful and wonderful at the same time? Here's the reason why. Because marriage is to reflect the nature of the gospel. And the nature of the gospel is both painful and wonderful all at the same time. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel, the gospel, <laughs> the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now listen, those two realities, which are both painful and accepting, those two realities that are both painful and wonderful, though, you have to have those in a relationship. Those are, that's the only type of relationship that will ever really transform us. Because love without truth, well, what is it? It's shallow sentimentalism. It's a hallmark card. It supports us and affirms us, but doesn't deal honestly with us about our sins and our flaws. However, love without truth is terribly abrasive. Sure, it gives you truth. Sure, it tells you the truth about yourself, but we recoil from it in such a way that we never really hear it. But the gospel, oh, the gospel, the gospel, God's saving love in Christ is marked by radical truthfulness about who we are. Radical truthfulness about who we are. And that's the really painful part. Because the gospel tells us, you are so flawed, you are so sinful, that philosophy and humanity can't save you. God himself has to enter into the creation in order to save you. That's how messed up humanity is. The gospel is painful, and yet it is wonderful because it tells us about the Lord's unconditional commitment to us. That's the wonderful part. And his merciful commitment to us, what it does is it enables us to see the truth about who we are and repent of it. His wonderful commitment to us enables us to hear the painful part about, about ourselves and yet then to hear the wonderful part that he is unconditionally committed to us. 
And then that brings conviction and repentance that moves us to rest in his love and his grace. Now, and here's why all of this is really important. Not only does the Bible give us the most comprehensive and realistic view of marriage in our world, but our understanding that marriage itself is to reflect the nature of the gospel. And what that does, the moment you realize that, the moment that penny drops from your head to your heart, what it does is it frees you to see your spouse's flaws and sins and yet still love them, fully love them, and fully accept them. And it enables you, when your spouse sees all of your sins and flaws and speaks of them, (laughs) it enables you that they're doing that out of their commitment to see the image of God more fully cultivated in you. Do you see what the gospel actually gives you? It gives you all of the needed resources you need in your marriage, not just to survive, but to thrive. You see, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, gives you both the best explanation for marriage in this age and the resources that are needed to push back against the culture's wisdom that divorce is the best option. And to cultivate a marriage that not only is joyful and happy, but also that reflects the nature of the gospel itself, that I am fully known and fully loved, both in my marriage and by the Lord himself. Does that make sense? Well, let me pray. I'll let you go. I've kept you too long. Father, Father, for those who have been divorced, our heart breaks for them, Lord. We know that the pain is intense and real, and it feels like the end of them in a lot of senses, and yet it's not. Father, your word, the gospel tells us it's not. Your love and your grace will meet them, will sustain them, will carry them forward. And Father, for those of us who are married, we sometimes think that marriage is the ultimate thing, and yet it's not. Your gospel is. And it gives us what we need to survive and to thrive within our marriages. And so what we need as your people is to take the gospel more seriously and all of its entailments, to savor and appreciate the gospel, that you tell us the most painful realities about ourselves, but then tell us the most glorious news in the world that you are unconditionally committed to us. And may we, as people who are in marriages, live out the gospel well within our own marriages, that we would see our spouse's flaws and we would love and accept them still, and that when they see all of our flaws (laughs) and they tell us about them, that we would recognize they're doing that out of their unconditional commitment to us so that we can cultivate together as husband and wife, we can cultivate as a couple the image of God within our marriage. So we trust you for these things, Lord. We know it's not easy. All of these things are, are um, challenging, to say the least. And yet, when we enter back into our homes this afternoon, uh, we pray that the joy of the gospel would go with us. The re- these realities would come behind us and we would live them out well in our marriages. So we trust you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.